This is Coast to Coast with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams, America's top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, both of them. One from California, one from Massachusetts. You can only guess what will happen next. Coast to Coast is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today to our show, Coast to Coast. It's November 1st, 2005. I'm Bob Ambrogi from Massachusetts. And I'm Craig Williams from Southern California. I write a blog called May It Please the Court. And Bob? I write a blog called Law Sites and also a second blog called Media Law, both of which are at LegalLine.com. Well, last week's show, which was a hot topic on the Gun Shield Bill, is up on the Legal Talk Network and available for our listeners to download. I understand it's been downloaded rather significantly. So today we're going to be talking about the nomination of Judge Samuel Alito on the United States Supreme Court. Alito is a former U.S. attorney and top Justice Department official who has 15 years on the Philadelphia-based court. And it's pretty much a tenure that gives him more appellate experience than almost any previous Supreme Court nominee. That's right. And uh, conservative groups point to that appellate experience uh, in supporting him, as well as uh, saying that he's been a powerful voice for the First Amendment's guarantees of free speech and the free exercise of religion. Well, your side of the fence, Bob, liberals are saying that his nomination is troublesome due to Alito's record on civil rights and reproductive rights. Uh, he's been nicknamed Scalito or a Scalia-lite, referring to his similarities to the decisions made by conservative Justice Antonin Scalia. He's uh, uh, Alito is a frequent dissenter, and I think we're going to be talking about some of his dissents today. Uh, he dissents on the Third Circuit, one of the most liberal federal appellate benches in the nation. Well, I'm also proof that not all Italian-Americans are conservative. Uh, so we'd like to introduce our guest for today, and we'd like to begin by introducing Matt Margolis. Matt is a founder and editor of Blogs for Bush, which launched on November 3, 2003. Uh, in a short period of time, Blogs for Bush became the largest blog community dedicated to a political candidate anywhere. Matt was one of the first bloggers to receive credentials for the Republican National Convention uh, in 2004. Matt also runs GOP Bloggers, a, gra a grassroots website uniting bloggers who support the Republican Party. Thanks for joining us today, Matt. I'm glad to be here. Well, next we'd like to introduce Professor Carl Tobias from the University of Richmond School of Law. Professor Tobias is a law professor at, uh, at Richmond, and he's also the author of numerous tributes and shorter book reviews in various law journals. He's written many commentaries and op-ed pieces for news publications, including the National Law Journal, Christian Science Monitor, Washington Times, Legal Times, San Francisco Examiner, and the Baltimore Sun. And some of his quotes were featured today in an AP article on Alito's views on abortion. Welcome to the show, Professor. Thank you. Finally, we'd like to welcome Drusilla Ramey, Executive Director of the National Association of Women Judges. She's a civil rights attorney and formerly Executive Director of the Bar Association of San Francisco. Just last week, her organization sent a letter to President Bush expressing support for a Supreme Court nominee similar to Sandra Day O'Connor. Thanks for joining us today, Ms. Ramey. Mm-hmm. Pleased to be here. Uh, and let's start with you, uh, Ms. Ramey, and I wonder if you could just tell us uh, uh, about the letter that you sent and uh, uh, your reaction to the nomination. Well, uh, I can, um, my responses have to, by definition, be uh, narrow because the National Association of Women Judges is not made up of both Democrats and Republicans of all stripes. Uh, does not take positions on individual candidates. Um, 
However, in our letter to President Bush, we urged that he nominate a woman in light of the fact that uh, to not do so would put us back to levels a couple of decades ago of representation of women on the court, uh, and to appoint a woman who was more in the stripe of, not necessarily more than Harriet Myers, because we did not allude to her either way, uh, but in the stripe of someone like Sandra Day O'Connor, who was a very pragmatic judge who stuck to the facts before her and had really an exquisite sensitivity to those at the bottom and margins of the social order, to use her own language. So the gist of the letter was, number one, to uh, appoint a woman in this regard, and number two, a woman uh, who would, as Sandra Day O'Connor was, uh, remain uh, true to the law and uh, remain in the more centrist uh, tradition that has proven to be so successful in the last 20 years. Why, why was it that with Meyer's withdrawal of her nomination, uh, attention seemed to turn away, at least on the administration's part, from having a woman on the bench? I don't know. I frankly, our organization was mystified. There right, right now are three sitting chief judges of federal courts of appeal, all of whom are extremely distinguished and two of whom are clearly uh, Republicans, uh, were before uh, taking the bench. Uh, and there are 19 women who serve as the chief justice of their state uh, Supreme Court, many of whom are uh, from the Republican Party and many of whom share uh, many of the uh, uh, sort of centrist views of uh, many in the Republican Party. Uh, in addition to those, there are a great many women sitting on district courts across the country and other uh, federal courts of appeal. Uh, so uh, his failure to to appoint one of what are dozens of extraordinarily well-qualified women uh, actually mystified and very much uh, disappointed us. Well, Matt, why don't you give us your point of view on Alito? If he's confirmed, it's pretty obvious that he's going to be giving a conservative bent to SCOTUS decisions. Uh, I'm pretty happy. Uh, I wasn't all that thrilled about Harriet Myers. I uh, didn't know much about her, and, and when things started coming out about uh, her positions on things, it just it wasn't uh, very clear even then just what her views were. And, uh, and you know, it doesn't bother me that uh, with Alito that Bush has decided to nominate a man to replace uh, Sandra Day O'Connor. I'm not really interested in there being a quota system for the Supreme Court. I want Bush to nominate uh, people who are qualified. And I think uh, it's clear that Alito is uh, certainly qualified to be on the Supreme Court. And uh, I think I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to uh, the hearings and seeing how this nomination goes. Professor Tobias, I wonder if I could turn to you and ask, it, it, it appears that uh, clearly the hot-button issue is, is going to be abortion, and that uh, seems to be coming out as, as a litmus test, I guess, to some extent. Um, and uh, I wonder uh, what your sense is of, of uh, what Alito's record tells us about his position on this issue and what's going to happen down the road. Well, everyone is focusing on his dissenting opinion in the Third Circuit in the Planned Parenthood versus Casey uh, decision, which uh, went to the Supreme Court and uh, was reversed essentially on one important issue of spousal notification. He would have upheld that uh, requirement, and the Supreme Court, six to three, uh, invalidated that requirement, saying it was imposed an undue burden on reproductive freedom. 
And I think that's the flashpoint for a number of people. Uh, in fairness, uh, in 2000, when the uh, so-called partial birth abortion uh, law out of New Jersey uh, came before the court, uh, he realized that Stenberg versus Carhart, the 2000 uh, Supreme Court opinion, dictated uh, the the course of action and uh, agreed to invalidate that. So it, it's rather clear from those opinions uh, what his perspectives might be, but there are many other issues um, that are uh, before the, the court in which he would anticipate, participate in if confirmed. Clear, clear from those decisions and from his mother's comments as well. Well, yes. <laughs> Drusilla, do you have a take on Casey? Uh, well, I wanted to actually just uh, respond briefly uh, to the comment about diversity. Diversity does not mean quotas. I mean, one could very successfully argue that if there is a quota system, it has been that for uh, white males on the Supreme Court with a few uh, cracks in the firmament here and there. Um, I believe that diversity means recognizing that this is an extraordinarily diverse country and that people, by definition, reflect uh, the experiences that they have had that are unique to their gender, to their race, to their culture, to their economic situation. Uh, And Sandra Day O'Connor was a justice who in many ways uh, brought that to bear on cases, the human element and the human element that she was more sensitive to in some respects uh, because of her particular upbringing as a woman, albeit a conservative woman, a woman on a ranch, and so forth. Uh, So basically diversity has nothing to do with quotas. It has to do with having a court that represents through extraordinarily highly qualified people of the sort I discussed earlier that reflects the uh, very, very broad diversity of which this country has always been proud. Uh, As far as the issue of choice is concerned and the issue of the Casey decision, as I say, uh, in my position as head of uh, the, as the staff head of the National Association of Women Judges, I really don't have any comment on that because these are issues that may uh, well come before our members. Well, Matt, Drusilla makes a good point that there are a lot of qualified female judges that could have been nominated by Bush. How, how do you view that? Uh, I'm, I'm sure there are, and, and quite a number of them, uh, the Democrats said they would filibuster. So uh, I don't see the, the idea of diversity on the court being this actually a legitimate uh, justification for one judge over another, certainly by the Democrats, because they, they've promised filibusters against certain uh, women nominees, such as uh, Janice Rogers-Brown. As I, well, as I believe, though, that I mentioned earlier, there are many, many Republican and relatively conservative Republican, in some cases very Republican, uh, judges across this country, including Carol Deneen King, the Chief Justice of the Fifth Circuit, who is an extraordinarily distinguished judge, and Chief Justice Taha of the Tenth Circuit, again, an extraordinarily distinguished judge who is uh, uh, and King herself was the head of the Federal Judicial Conference, as you know. Uh, these are judges that are not uh, judges that would probably have been uh, nominees of a Democratic president, but they are uh, distinguished Republican and conservative judges who I believe would not have engendered anything like a filibuster. So I disagree. And, and what with you your say? Assumption here. 
And what you say extends as well to the issue of, of a minority nominee. Uh, many people are upset that uh, I noticed the National Hispanic Bar Association president came out uh, strongly against this nominee, expecting to have seen or hoping to have seen a Hispanic nominee. Does anybody have any thoughts on that? Uh, the, the Democrats also uh, were interested in filibustering uh, Miguel Estrada to the point where he was held up for so long, he ended up dropping out. Uh, but again, there are many, many, many extremely distinguished uh, Hispanic judges. And Estrada was very distinguished himself. He was uh, deemed uh, very qualified by the American Bar Association. He, uh, his qualifications were superb. Well, we certainly haven't avoided the, the so-called nuclear option in this case. I mean, a filibuster is certainly a strong possibility. Uh, it might be, but I don't think it's going to work. Uh, the Republicans seem very united behind Alito, and uh, we, we've seen uh, two GOP members of the uh, Gang of 14 already promise that you know if Democrats filibuster, they're not going to stand for it. Well, it's early days. Well, Professor Tobias, or we have... Notice that uh, Judge Alito was appointed by George Sr. in 1990. He was unanimously reported to the Senate, and there are 19 serving Democrats that were part of that unanimous consent. What's your take on what's going to happen? Well, I think um, that a good point was just made, that it is very early. It's premature to uh, speculate about filibusters and Gang of 14 and all the various developments that may unfold. If you remember the beginning of Ms. Meyer's confirmation proceeding, uh, it wasn't altogether clear how that would play out. And I think it's important to keep everyone's powder dry and to have a full, fair airing of the issues and to fully explore the record. The one nice thing about Judge Alito's record is there are 15 years of opinions that we can study, uh, and he can be asked questions. I noticed Senator Specter, Chair of Judiciary, yesterday had already begun the questioning on uh, privacy and other uh, important issues, federalism, states' rights, and so uh, hopefully uh, we will have that full debate, and uh, we'll see how the confirmation process goes. Have you, Professor Tobias, have you had an opportunity to look at all in, at that record? And if so, uh, what uh, what else do you see there that's of interest to you? Well, I'm not sure it makes what, much difference what's of interest to me. I think what's more important is what's of interest to the Senate and to the country and to uh, members of the Senate Judiciary Committee. But I think we'll see uh, a number of issues that have been important, uh, such as federalism, states' rights, reproductive freedom, civil rights, uh, cases, First Amendment, as people have talked about, and all of those will will be scrutinized. I think it's also important to think about uh, what the court's docket might look like in 10 or 15 years out, as difficult as that may be to anticipate what kind of cases may come before the court and how Judge Alito, if confirmed, might resolve those types of disputes. Matt, do you believe that uh, Bush's conservative base forced this kind of an, an appointment from him or nomination? Um, to to a degree, I think though it was just getting clear, more clear every day that uh, Myers was just was in trouble of even getting confirmed, and it was probably just at that time good for her to go. And I think that might have. Uh, 
got the message over to Bush that he really needs to respond to his base. Uh, he was the one that, when he was running for election, said he was going to nominate certain kinds of judges. And, you know, he was elected last year with over 62 million votes. The, his base wants to see him uh, nominate the people that he said he would nominate. Although I don't think that uh, the vast majority of people who voted for President Bush are <clears throat> interested in seeing long-standing precedents uh, reversed, and I don't think the vast majority of people who voted for President Bush, in fact, would precedent. have had an objection. Let me finish. To uh, Harriet Myers, had she had um, even a, a scintilla of judicial experience, um, I, I actually felt and many in our organization felt that the reaction to Harriet Myers, who clearly was an extremely conservative candidate, uh, had more than a little bit of, uh, of the suggestion of sexism uh, uh, owing to uh, the lack of judicial experience that perhaps would not have created such a firestorm had uh, it had been a man in that particular situation. But I disagree with you that the people who voted for the vast majority of the people who voted for George W. Bush were voting for a uh, people on the Supreme Court uh, who would change long-standing precedents in the area of, of for example, uh, privacy, separation of powers, uh, and the Commerce Clause. Well, one significant difference with uh, with uh, uh, Judge Alito is that he uh, has had a significant, uh, a more significant background in public service. I mean, he's here's a guy who came out at the top of his class at Yale Law School and then devoted the, his entire career to public service. Now, I went is, to is Yale that... Law School, and, you know, we really kind of didn't have much in the way of grades at Yale Law School. So <laughs> I just, well, we didn't, and it was my class that put through that system in 1968. So I just want to just thank Interrupt. I'm sorry. I'll okay. Back. Well, he was editor of the Yale Law Journal, for example, and I mean, I assume that uh, okay, having, that having been through law, law school myself, up on a piece of paper, I just just wanted to, you know, okay. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, uh, the point is that that he had uh, uh, plenty of opportunities, uh, having come out of Yale, no matter what his grades were, uh, to uh, various uh, alternatives in a career. And I, gu- I guess I wonder what uh, what we should, uh, what relevance that public service career has on serving on the Supreme Court, if that's important or not, in your opinion. And I'll throw that to anybody who wants to. Uh, do we have thoughts? Nobody has thoughts on that. Well, Bob, something that you mentioned brings up a thought that I've always had. You know, it's one of the things that I've noticed that people, our lawyers in particular, will always say, hi, I'm so-and-so, and and the next question is, where did you go to law school? And there's always an intimation about how you did in law school and what kind of grades you got. And as a lawyer, I'm always surprised that, you know, I've been practicing for 18 years, and now they're still asking those questions. Where did I go to law school? How did I graduate? What relevance does that have after so much experience? Well, I don't mean to suggest that where he went to law school has a lot of relevance, except uh, what I'm saying, and, and I don't mean to certainly be defending this man because uh, <laughs> I would rather see almost anybody but this guy nominated to the court. But uh, his he has an opportunity uh, coming out of law school to uh, go on to a career that could have made him uh, a lot of money, and uh, instead he chose a career uh, serving in government his entire life uh, as a U.S. attorney, as an assistant solicitor general, as a uh, as a judge on the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, and so 
I, I guess to me that says something about the man, uh, at well, least in terms of a commitment to public You service. know, actually, though, in looking at the backgrounds of so many of the members of the, uh, the 1,200 members of the National Association of Women Judges, I'm really struck by how many of them pretty much have pursued a public service uh, career. And so I don't think, I think that, uh, that it's laudable. On the other hand, it also can deprive uh, a candidate of real-life experiences uh, of practicing lawyers in uh, the courts that, uh, that others that would, would enrich their ability to, uh, to, to judge cases uh, that come before them. An awful lot of people who, uh, who become high-level judges really uh, have never practiced uh, civil law, have never practiced uh, civil rights law, uh, from uh, the plaintiff's perspective or uh, uh, have explored other areas of the law that uh, are directly relevant to their service on the court and to their kind of real-life experiences. So I think that it is laudable to engage in public service, but I don't know that it uh, makes you any more qualified to be on the court. Well, we can follow up that comment on business experience and real-life experience in a moment. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we'll wrap up our discussion and get some final thoughts from our guests. We'll be right back. Check out J. Craig Williams' blog at mayofpleasethecourt.com. Likewise, Robert Ambrogi's blog at LegalLine.com for daily legal observations, perspective, and, of course, a healthy dose of wit and humor. We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession. As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Please the Court, and Robert Ambrogi's blog, Law Sites, are part of its blog network. Don't wait any longer. Visit Law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day. Or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our Practice Center sections. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to the Coast to Coast on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams. And I'm Bob Ambrogi. Uh, thanks for getting back with us. And we're here with our guest, Matt Margolis, founder and editor of Blogs for Bush, uh, Carl Tobias, professor of law at the University of Richmond, and Drusilla Ramey, executive director of the National Association of Women Judges. Well, Professor Tobias, I wanted to follow up that earlier comment on real-life experience and grades and law schools. And How does that play into a Supreme Court nominees from your perspective? 
Well, I think uh, it's important to focus on all of the relevant experience that Judge Alito has had, and it's been pretty extraordinary. Uh, and I think it's best to work backwards. I mean, you've got 15 years of opinions uh, decision-making on the federal appeals court for the Third Circuit, and I think that's most important, and those opinions should be scrutinized in that decision-making as well. But also, he's a U.S. attorney for the uh, New Jersey District, and that's an important uh, task. And he was in and out of the Justice Department Solicitor General's office. And all of those positions um, would have uh, involved him and steeped him in uh, the very issues that he may well see at the Supreme Court. So I think it's important to look at that entire record working uh, back historically in time. Uh, and he obviously had a sterling record as a student, uh, but I don't know that we even need to go to that point. He has all this other uh, extensive record. Well, Matt, you've got a lot of background support for this uh, nomination, I'm assuming. Uh, yeah, I've, uh, everything I've seen so far has been very pleasing to me, and uh, the readers of my site uh, are all uh, pretty excited about this nomination. I think uh, we're seeing a very... Uh, very contrasting, uh, different view of uh, Alito than it was with uh, Myers, and uh, I think e- even so with uh, Roberts as well. I think uh, uh, conservatives are, are really pleased about this nomination and are, are even going to fight for this one, even maybe even harder than they did with Roberts, because even Roberts there was um, much less of a track record first to go by. We've seen, as Craig mentioned earlier, uh, a lot of comparisons made uh, between uh, Justice Scalia and this nominee. Uh, are those comparisons fair? And, and if so, if there was a, a, a voting block of these two, what, what might that mean for the direction of the court? Uh, perhaps it's fair, perhaps it's not. I mean, I think we need to stop looking at him in terms of comparing him to other people and just let him stand on his own record. And I think that's what we should be focusing on because uh, we're going to see a lot of issues coming out from his you know, his own record that we're going to have to discuss. We're not. Uh, it's not going to be useful for us to discuss him in terms of how Scalia has voted and what that means for how he's going to vote because we don't know. We need to look at his own record, uh, and I'm sure we're going to see it come up quite a bit, especially with abortion in the Planned Parenthood case. I think uh, you know, that's where the debate should focus on. But, but, you know, I think it's important to remember that the function of the courts, among others, is to limit the sort of tyranny of the majority uh, when, in fact, it runs afoul of the Constitution, and to have judges who are aware of, as I quoted earlier, of those at the bottom and the margins of the social order. And uh, I, I think that when it comes to issues of uh, the rights of racial and ethnic minorities, the rights of women, the rights of uh, the poor, the rights of religious uh, minorities who are not Christian, the rights of so many groups uh, who do not have special interest groups representing them in the legislatures, that it is extremely important to have on the Supreme Court people who are willing to stand up and weigh legislation that is passed without benefit of the voices of those people largely against the Constitution and to uh, remember that they are the final guardians of the rights of those people uh, who do not have much of a voice in what is an increasingly polarized society. And that is, I think, an extremely important aspect of Judge Alito's uh, 
decision-making in the past that has to be looked at extremely carefully. And I would say uh, that you uh, have a large record to scrutinize, and I think that's exactly what should happen. And in light of the comparison with Scalia, my review, and I think others have shown that you don't see in Judge Alito's uh, opinions some of the acerbic assertions that sometimes are in Justice Scalia's opinions, where he seems to criticize uh, the perspectives of his colleagues. And in person, uh, I believe Judge Alito is very uh, self-effacing, and I think that people will see that when he testifies and might have seen that yesterday in his acceptance speech. Well, it sounds like we're hearing uh, that as important as the uh, record he brings to the job is the experience he brings to the job. Uh, we have only a couple minutes left, and I wonder if we can get final thoughts on this uh, from each of you, starting with, with Matt Margolis. Uh, well, I guess all I have to say is I think uh, Alito needs to go through the hearings, and I think uh, a filibuster against him is, is not going to work, and I'm looking forward to seeing him serve in the Supreme Court. Professor Tobias, any final thoughts? I hope that we have a full and fair airing of all the important issues and that there's close scrutiny of the judge's record uh, and that he's forthcoming in his answer to the questions that the Judiciary Committee asks him. And Drusilla Ramey, a final uh, word is yours. I agree with, uh, with uh, the professor, and I, I guess uh, I, I hope that uh, the questioning... Uh, uh, really probes the extent to which um, this proposed justice will, in fact, uh, assure justice uh, for all and not just for certain privileged groups within the society. Well, uh, with that, I think we're going to wrap it up, and we'd like to thank uh, Matt Margolis, the editor of Blogs for Bush, and Drusilla Ramey for, uh, from the Women's Judges, and Professor Tobias from the University of Richmond School of Law. Thank you very much for participating today. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Coast to Coast has been sponsored by Law.com. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.